Hello, this is Ben Phelps. And I'm Lelius Rose. And this is another episode of Precious Snowflakes. Today, we'll be discussing uh, Obamacare and Trumpcare slash Ryancare slash the AHCA. And also, censorship? <laughs> Question mark? No, you know what? No, we're not going to do censorship. We're not going to do censorship. No. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, instead, well, we're going to we talk will, about something. Well, it'll be redacted from the. Yeah, instead, we're going to talk about something uh, light and fun: treason. So. <laughs> on so, to... so so today was was a red letter day in the Trump administration, in that they finally repealed and replaced Obamacare after seven <laughs> years of of talking about it. Today, after much. Ballyhoo, they actually held the vote and Obamacare has been repealed and replaced with the new Trump Ryan plan. And it was it was really an amazing victory for Trump and Ryan, wouldn't you say? I mean, this this really finally shows that they know how to get things done. And they've been. Vi- oh, wait a minute. It didn't. They pulled the vote, didn't they? Thank you, Donald. I know you were listening to just that piece, and I hope you'll continue to as you try to cry yourself to sleep every night. Um, yeah, today was just the most wonderful kind of political schadenfreude. Um, they realized they didn't have the votes, so they pulled it instead of actually putting it to a vote because Donald Trump is fundamentally a coward. <laughs> As, well, he did say something that I, I can't really argue with, though, is that it, the, it's ironic that the House Freedom Caucus are the ones who... You know, they're the ones who wanted to get rid of Obamacare the most, and yet they're the ones who have now, through their refusal to vote for the for the bill, have effectively kept it in place because they they want it they they, they want it all. They don't want to compromise. Well, just, before before we get into the nitty gritty with the House Freedom Caucus, I just want to say, um, <laughs> I was I was at Whistler this morning, and on the road back. My father and I were listening to CBC Radio in Canada, and we were listening to their response to this all going down, which was mostly just stating facts about it. And I noted that Donald Trump is a coward for not (laughs) putting it to a vote. And my dad's response was, well, he's a bully, and bullies are always cowards. And I think that is fundamentally true. Donald Trump played a game of chicken. For the better part of a couple of weeks now, he's been threatening... Republicans from the moderate wing and from the House Freedom Caucus, which is more or less the Tea Party wing, uh, he's been threatening that if any of them vote against this plan, that he will go after them in primaries. You know, he'll he'll pick somebody, sort of Jed Bartlett style. You know, he'll he'll throw his arm around some young assistant DA and have them be the new challenger, uh, and. He could have put it to a vote. He could have put it to a vote. Well, supposedly that's what he wanted. Right. He could have done that. He could have let these congressmen sweat it out. And then the ones who switched to a yes, you know, he would have owed. And the ones who stayed no would have been very visibly on his shit list. Yeah. I mean, that that was one of the things that there was speculate, like why he would want to hold a vote at all. And one of the rationales was a a, way to get an enemies list. Right. Is to force force the issue, force people to pick sides. And instead they pulled it because the optic, presumably because the optics would have been so bad. Well, what would have happened is once 
the fact that everyone knew it was going to go down from the get-go, the no votes would have piled on a lot more than they otherwise would have been. Everyone who didn't want to have to worry about taking an unpopular position and going and defending it. I mean, they were all, it was already a little iffy trying to defend it back in their districts. But now, now that we know it's not going to pass from the, from, from the get-go, why, why should anyone vote for it? They probably would have gotten less than 100 votes for yes. But that's the thing. It would have been just a hugely, just, it, it would have so, been a, so just a question, huge embarrassment. It wouldn't have been even close. So that's the thing. It was, it was a question of whether or not Trump's threats to them were empty. And at the end of the day, it was these were empty threats. And now they know. Now they know that when he threatens, you know, you're going to lose your job if you don't vote the way I want you to, that there's nothing to back that up. That at the end of the day, he'll just give up because well, I mean, he's afraid of failure. Imagine you're a Tea Party or a House Freedom Caucus member from a very conservative district in the Midwest or in the South. And Trump you know, decides to endorse your primary opponent saying you should vote for this guy instead of this incumbent who, because he or she wouldn't, wouldn't vote for my healthcare bill. And then, and the response being, oh yeah, I didn't vote for the Ryan Trump bill because it was Obamacare light. Why should I vote for Obamacare light? Oh, hell yeah, I would vote no. And I'd, and I'd do it again. Who is, is, I mean, with, what does he even have to threaten them with? Well, that's the, <laughs> I don't. I don't. Th I think in a very conservative district, voting no on what's been labeled as a, a, a hastily slopper, sloppily written bill that basically is Obamacare light. What do What does a very conservative member of Congress have to lose by by not going along with that? Uh, in theory, what they have to lose is money from the Trump people. Uh -huh. And if Trump went to their actual district and said, you all voted for me, <laughs> you all voted for me for president, but I can't do my job without a Congress that supports me. Your congressman doesn't support me. Therefore, I need you to vote for this other person. That is, at least in theory, what he could do. And there were presidents in the past who have actually done that. Yeah, but I mean, does Trump have the clout to do that? I mean, they, I That's mean, in all question. fairness... That's what the bet was. In, in all fairness, they produced a bill that was a, a piece of shit. I mean, right. Let's, Which let's is, not kid ourselves. It, it, nobody liked this bill. No. That's one of the... <laughs> what, what was the Quinnipiac poll said? It had 17. like a 17... I mean, I mean, it... It it was just it was it was sloppily thrown together in a in a in a back room with you know just by the leadership without any without any bipartisan involvement. It was hastily drafted and no one really knows what the consequence was going to be. It was we knew it was going to kick a lot of people off their health care. We knew it would save money, but we didn't I mean, they were going to, they wanted to strip out a bunch of the essential benefits. I mean, who knows what we would have gotten out of this. Maybe you would have some cheaper plans, but who even knows if they'd be worth the paper they, they were written on? I mean, well, that's one of the, one of the open questions here is like, I, uh, I continue to believe that, uh, ACA, AKA Obamacare is itself not a good law. Uh, and the fundamental reason why is seen in places like rural Arizona, where there is now only one plan available to people on these, um, you know, in whatever the local marketplace is. And they're ludicrously expensive. Like yeah, premiums I mean, are going through the roof. And one of the reasons we have that situation is because uh, they stripped out the public option from the original bill to placate 
conservative Democrats, ironically. It's always the well, the, some small faction of the of the, that, of the of the majority wing that ends up. So <laughs> that I would argue throwing that, a monkey wrench in these things. I would argue that Obama never wanted single payer. That he never wanted a public option. Well, the Pelosi public is not single payer. So, so okay. The public option never wanted was public basically. Option. So Pelosi wanted the public option because it would create an incentive to keep premiums down and to keep costs down. Yeah. And. <laughs> But to Obama and to much of the median of the party, it was considered to be too socialist. And and I think Obama really did personally believe that because what Pelosi said was, I've got the votes. I've got the votes in the House. I know I can pass a public option if we can jam it through the Senate. And there's no reason to believe they couldn't. Then the question was, would Obama have signed it? And he nixed it. Like he... Was Obama that did it? I... I, re- I remember them they're having problems with certain senators who wouldn't get behind it, like Mary Landrew and, I some, other, and some other Democrats who have since Democratic senators who have since lost their jobs. The well, the day that Pelosi announced via press conference that they were considering a public option, Obama immediately held a press conference of his own in which he said that the public option was under no circumstances on the table. I remember him defending the public option. You know, when when people were attacking it and saying, oh, it's a, you're pushing us towards a single payer. I mean, the whole idea of the public option is that it was an option. You know, it was for a situation like you like you have in Arizona, like you were talking about, where there's only one plan and it's super expensive, it would be, well, all these private plans are ridiculous, or this one private plan is ridiculous. I can buy into the, you know, like Medicaid-like plan and just, and just pay what, you know, is a, a fairly, you know, reasonable premium. At least it would always be... Enough. That was the whole idea behind it. So we wouldn't be just stuck yeah. with whatever the insurance industry left us. Yeah, if, that, if, if, if now in some states like like California and Washington State, we actually have functioning marketplaces where we do have a whole bunch of different options. One of the few, right? And and so it's not like it like it can't work, but it's you know and. Like 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 Trump knew nobody knew that healthcare would be so complicated, <laughs> but the way they oh, tried man. to they they tried to push this through in such slapdash fashion. Yeah, well, this with, is... with all, leaving all these holes in it. I mean, basically trying to strip it, and yet it it, it just I don't it it basically confirmed all the you know the worst stereotypes that you know everyone has of Republicans being you know mean and heartless and not giving a shit who they who they hurt. Yeah, for for seven years, Republicans said Obamacare is the worst. It's the worst, and we're going to repeal and replace it as it's soon as we're in charge. Right. And and Democrats would frequently say, "Well, what's your plan? What's your alternative?" Mm-hmm. And the answer was always something along the lines of, "Get rid of the lines." Or... It right. It'll be it'll be a wonderful plan when we show it to you. Mm-hmm. And you know, once it became Trump, it would it was. You know, it's going to be the greatest plan. It's going to be the best plan you've ever seen. Everyone's going to be covered somehow. It's going to be bet. You're going to get more and pay less, right? Uh, yeah. And with never any specifics. And now we know the truth that they were BSing the whole time. Everything, every sort of negative thing that Democrats thought about the Republican Party vis-a-vis just being, you know, cranky opposition and shooting things down without having their own counterproposals. That all has turned out to be true. They didn't have a counterproposal. They slapped <laughs> together a shitty compromise that would have made, that would have probably continued to make healthcare even more expensive 
that would have made it less accessible to people. Well, and all of a sudden we would have all these shitty plans back that exclude all these things that most people need, you know, like (laughs) if they're actually going to use their health insurance. Well, that's, you know... Like prescription drugs, you know. One of... Hospital visits. I'll say this. One of the ways in which I am significantly more libertarian is that I really think of myself as being a pretty strict constitutionalist. Mm -hmm. And I believe that those those issues which are not explicitly stated are the federal government's responsibility and the Constitution are, as the Constitution says, supposed to be left to the states. So I would prefer... That our healthcare, uh, that our healthcare legislation go through states as opposed to through the federal government, um, and in my sort of perfect world vision, the fifty states would get to be fifty laboratories of experimentation. <laughs> Different, like Washington State, would probably go with public healthcare because that's Washington State. Vermont already has proposed their own socialist healthcare system, which they actually are legally not able to enact because of the current federal laws in the books that prevent them from being able to create their own single payer. Um, and yeah, I, I just think that that should be a state's issue because it's not in the constitution that the federal government is responsible for healthcare. The thing is with, with a lot of these theoretical ideas about, you know, laboratories of experimentation and whatever, the, the thing about healthcare is it's such, it, it's it's something that's just so important to, to, to individuals, to people, to their family. It's, it literally is life and death. And, and you really have to take that seriously whenever you consider monkeying around with it, whether it's through changes to the insurance market or whatever. It's... I mean, you can only you can only get so experimental with people's lives. You know, you have to have some idea what well, you're, what what you're actually doing. Which <laughs> so the fundamental question is: Is medical care a fundamental right? Um, effectively, I mean, it. I don't know. If, I mean, in the Constitution, it talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happen- happiness. <laughs> It's. It seems uh, like <laughs> the Constitution doesn't actually. The, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. The Declaration. Fine. The Declaration well, of okay. Independence says the Constitution, by the way, uh, says guaranteed rights to life, liberty, and property. Right. Which is sort of the more the more sort of orthodox. Well, no. It, well, no, actually, what I was thinking of it says that uh, one of the one of the purposes of the Constitution is to ensure the general welfare. <laughs> right so there's <clears throat> i so, i personally believe it that, seems hard to maintain your general welfare if you can't get medical care but that's one of the that is that is what the stated purpose of the government is to well <laughs> as you sigh but it's true it does say that what that means, uh, right? That's open to a little bit of interpretation. So the Constitution, but, but regardless of what the Constitution says, we all at some point we all need you know medical attention, right? We would. Right. <laughs> well, so it's some, and you don't know when you're going to need it or exactly how much of it you're going to need. It's something we're going to need whether we want to buy insurance or not. It's we're going to need to go get medical attention at some point. We're mortal human beings. Yeah, there is a point to be made that health insurance is not like buying a car, uh, that medical care is something you need to survive mm-hmm. in a way that a car is fundamentally not. Um, 
You know, depending where you live. Uh, <laughs> well, it's so... Well, and the idea, like, with car insurance, you, 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 there are lots of people who don't own cars. I mean, you, they require you to buy auto insurance if you have a car, but you have the choice to not own a car. <laughs> so it's not like everybody has to buy it so, unless you want to own a car. But that's a whole other... The way I see it, you'll have to bear with me for a moment. Okay. The Constitution is a lot like the Bible. There are specifics that are laid out, you know, in hard text that are effectively non-negotiable. But a lot of it is vagary. And in the Jewish tradition, where there is vagueness or where there is contradiction, there is room for argument. And Jewish law has been constructed by arguing about specific meanings of specific word, sometimes letter choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are always two sides. And then some sort of consensus is found. And then... Arguments build on arguments build on arguments. You know, Jewish law is codified in Orthodox Jewish law, I should say, but Jewish law generally, is codified in a document called the Talmud, which is actually two documents. The Mishnah, which is uh, arguments and commentary on the Torah, and then the Gemara, which is arguments and commentary about the Mishnah. And the Torah is itself not a big book. The Talmud in total is at least one, like, row of books. Okay. It's massive. Yeah, it's big. Okay, we get so, <laughs> so the Constitution is has some specifics in it, and it also has a lot of vagueness in it. And there's a lot of room for debate within those vagaries. And a lot of it has to do with where you put your priorities, where you put your beliefs. I choose to believe very strongly in the provision in the Constitution that says that those things not laid out in the Constitution are left to the states. So I think I think healthcare is just so, one of those things. That so you don't think healthcare should be a right? One of the things that is often said in libertarian circles is that nothing can be a right if it involves taking something from someone else. And at the end of the day, medical care isn't a thing that falls like manna from the heavens. Medical care is something you receive from a person it's a person's labor. It's their expertise. You know, it's it's the it's their sweat. It's the sweat of their brow. And if you mandate that medical care is a right, what you're saying is that everyone has a right to the sweat of that other person's brow. Well, you're getting very theoretical there. The fact is, I mean, under under the law, if you go to an emergency room bleeding, they have to treat you, whether you can pay for it or not. That's true. And you um, don't think that should be the case? And that's also... The doctor shouldn't say, well, I don't feel like working on you. you well, know, let me yeah. say that's that's also self-imposed. Mm-hmm. Like, the doctors have their own strict ethical guidelines about you know, what it means to be a doctor. And one of their things is that they don't refuse treatment. Right. Even um, if they're not going to get paid. So so that's... Well, so that's their choice as a, as a general profession. Um, well, the doctor's going to get paid. It's the hospital that's going to have to eat it, usually, if you go to a hospital. The problem is if if you have lots of people that don't have insurance, and any uh, one of them can go to a hospital and get treatment, well, that someone's going to end up, practically speaking, someone's going to end up paying for that. It's going to drive up the cost for those who can pay. 
yeah. for those who do have insurance. And that's one of the reasons why we <laughs> the the cost of a uh, of healthcare was was spiraling out of control because you had these scores of uninsured people that I mean you get you get into a car accident or you come down with something serious you have to seek treatment I mean what are you going to do in an emergency and so you have all these people using emergency rooms as their primary care and it and and you have hospitals having to write write all this stuff off I mean it's just it was it's it's I mean whether theoretically whatever you know you believe about the Constitution or whatever people are going to seek medical care and hospitals can't toss them out the door even though that's a very inefficient and a, a lot of ways very expensive and inefficient and often ineffective way of treating people it would it actually saves money if you just give them insurance for free and have them get access to things like preventative care. Interestingly, um, I haven't seen the actual data to back this up, but I have read this in a number of reputable sources and semi-reputable. Uh-huh. My understanding is that uh, emergency room visits have actually gone up since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Really? That's what I've read. <laughs> um, anyone who's listening to this, feel free to fact check me on this, and I'd be happy to offer a retraction next week, but... My understanding is that emergency well, maybe room because visits people, have gone up. I mean, if that is true, assuming it is true, maybe it's people are... There's probably a lot of people who were reluctant to seek health care just because they're worried about the bills. So they... That may be true. They let things go untreated. When, I mean, it, I imagine the more people who have access to actual insurance are probably going to seek more... Treat, I mean, once it was first passed and people... For example, when Medicaid was expanded, you had a lot of people sign up. And start, you know, seeking. They had conditions that they were putting off, you know. And there's, you know, there's probably a lot of people who weren't getting preventative care who were, you know, didn't. They just were sort of crossing their fingers and hoping they were were okay. Whereas when when they started getting access to, you know, that that is one of the essential benefits required under Obamacare is is it pays for preventative care. So yeah, this is one of those. Where the rubber hits the road moments for me, because <laughs> I, you know, have very strong philosophical feelings about these sorts of things. But what I don't want is to see people dying in the street because they, right. because they can't afford to can't afford. That's one of the few things. That's care. one of the few areas where I think Mr. Trump himself actually, you know, feels a little bit of empathy for people when he. I mean, that's something I think he can actually relate to. Wow, imagine if I got sick and I couldn't go to. A, you know, see what's his name, the guy with the long hair. <laughs> well, that's one of those. <laughs> that's one of those areas where, like, populist nationalism around the world has had an interesting relationship with healthcare mm-hmm. because one of the things that Trump said repeatedly: "Everyone's going to be covered. Everyone's going to be covered." And he was asked directly on sixty Minutes, "Who's going to pay for that?" And his response was, "The government's going to pay for it," because <laughs> that's. The sort of thing that populist nationalists want is socialized medicine, generally. And the question is, how is he going to achieve that, given that he is the president from the Republican Party and not, in fact, elected from well, a socialist party? Right after it was announced that the vote was uh, was getting pulled, uh, one of the first things he did was get on the phone with Bob Costa from the Washington Post. And one of the interesting things he told Bob was that uh, he wants to revisit it again, uh, you know, maybe a year or two from now. And he said that next time around, he wants to do it in a bipartisan way. 
that he wants to get Democrats on board too and hammer out something. I, he, I think he knows that, that that he screwed up. That he he felt like Ryan kind of you know took him for a ride and that he regrets doing it. That he should have yeah. you know tackled something else first. Although you know supposedly they want to go out, they want to do a, you know tax reform and all that. Of course, a lot of the tax cuts they were going to give were going to be paid for by all the savings from Obamacare. So that's there there is a, a, a well, reason why they decided to, to do this first but you know right this was supposed to be the easy one because all republicans ran on repeal and replace here's the thing both they, parties know that there's that obamacare has problems but that it also does some good things there are some extremely popular parts of obamacare the fact that you can't be denied coverage due to pre-existing conditions that that is so huge and it's it's hard to underscore just how important that is for just about everybody the idea that you could get sick and then become effectively uninsurable is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that, you know, there's the, the, just the fact that you didn't get around to buying insurance. Maybe you're in your 20s like you, and then all of a sudden you come down with cancer. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe you should have bought insurance, but you still have a, a condition now that may cost millions of dollars to treat or you die. Technically, I have employer-provided insurance, so I'm fine. Yeah, well, good for you. Not everyone is so lucky, and not everyone's employment is is so secure. The idea well, that I didn't a year ago. The idea that having like a good, you know, full time job is the cost is just the price you pay in order to have health care is kind of is kind of crazy. I mean, we're the only country in the world that, that, that does it that way. You, well, first of all, only Western country, but also. It'll be interesting to see what happens with healthcare around the world because what what other in what other country do the majority of the population get their health insurance through their employers? Uh, none that I can think of. But <laughs> okay. one of the funnier Western or non-Western. Well, you know. well, one of the funnier things about all this is while we're in the middle of debating, you know, where we want to go because everything is is spiraling out of control expense-wise, and there are sort of no easy answers to how we fix these problems with ACA. Uh, Meanwhile, one of the countries that people like to point to is like they have a great healthcare system is Sweden. But Sweden's healthcare costs have also spiraled out of control to the point where their government has actually announced that they want to pursue a quote Americanization <laughs> of their healthcare system. Uh-huh. Yeah, they chose to call it an Americanization and most Americans but, think that our healthcare is pretty what bad. What exactly are they actually proposing? They're going to privatize it. <clears throat> okay. And are they going, is the government not going to pay anymore? Or is everyone going to have to get it through their employers or buy it on the individual? I mean, what is their actual proposal? So it's unclear exactly what their end goal is, but I'm fairly certain that in the short term, what they want to do is transition from the single payer system they have to having a marketplace with both private insurers and for the time being a public option. Okay. I don't know whether or not they want to eventually phase out the public option, but one of the things that they would like to do is allow private insurance companies to come in and start picking up some of the slack. Okay. Because uh, they, they believe that private insurance companies will be better able to control costs than they can as the government. Um, and of course, many Americans believe that the government is better able to control costs than the insurance companies, which are currently spiraling out of control. Well, and the, the thing is, if you don't have a lot of regulations in the insurance industry, it there's there, there's not much in the way of, have, of, of companies that will sell 
insurance that's basically worthless. I mean, that's the whole idea of having the essential benefits on Obamacare <laughs> is so that they're not, I mean, there were a lot of policies before Obamacare that were, I mean, they call them catastrophic or whatever, but you know, you're, you're shopping for some of these policies. You're like, oh, it's $40 a month or whatever. But you know, you look at the deductibles, you look at the things that aren't included. It's kind of like, huh, all right. Maybe that's fine for someone who's rarely ever going to use it. But <laughs> there are a lot of these things, are, you know, are downright predatory. Yeah, I can recall that when my family was at was in a pretty rough spot financially, we moved to catastrophic care and almost immediately my appendix burst. Mm -hmm. And it was a major problem. Um, like we're actually one of those families that was effectively bankrupted by the healthcare system because at the same time that I had a major hospital bill as a teenager, my aunt mo effectively moved in with us from New York uh, with massive mental issues and including agoraphobia uh, and lung cancer. And then right after she passed away, my grandmother, who had also moved out here from New York, uh, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And between the two of them, between like hospice care for the two of them back to back, we just lost everything. The fun days before and Obamacare. Is, okay, and but you're and but you're you're not a big fan of Obamacare at the same time, right? Because it has some pretty fundamental flaws. But do you want to, you wouldn't want to just go back to the way it was before, would you? Like to no. just control Z on Obamacare. No, like I said, my ideal would be for for states to make different decisions about what they're going to do. There are places now in the United States where rural primary care physicians have started to go sans insurance, where they do a la carte and they negotiate every bill with their patients. That is, generally speaking, one of the most affordable options for patients. Well, and there's nothing stopping anyone from doing that now, <laughs> except that you have to have... You know, some except sort of that the right, Here's except the, thing, the individual though, mandate. If you come down with AIDS or or lung cancer or something like that, your you know country doctor ain't going to be able to take care of all that for you know a discount price. I mean, if you need hospitalization or tests or any kind of specialty care, I mean that's that's just not really feasible to just go to you know you know doc down the road. Yeah, I think when it comes to healthcare policy, generally speaking, we. We all knew, Mr. President, we all knew it was complicated. <laughs> Everyone else knew it was complicated. Like, I don't have a perfect solution answer. Uh, I don't think anyone does. I, but, but clearly, most of America has agreed that the American Healthcare Act <laughs> was the worst possible answer to this problem. Like... Healthcare in America well, would have thrown the whole industry into disarray. I mean, no one would. I mean, right now things are, you know, I, I don't know if I completely buy this whole thing that Obamacare is going to collapse. I think the well, market might down. collapse in certain places, but there are other places where it's working okay. I think what we need to do is try to is try to address the specific problems, like not like the fact that there's a lot of insurers that have pulled out of certain states. And figure out, okay, well, why is that? Why is it not competitive? Like, and one, I mean, I mean, you know, Trump has been given a lot of crap for the whole get rid of the lines thing, but th there is something to be said for it. One of the problem, one of the reasons you can't 
sell insurance over state lines is that every state has different rules. <laughs> what if we created, you know, a system where you could, you know, sell it in whatever state? Like, why does an insurance po policy have to be specific to a specific state? You know, one of the things that Obama did in his first term that was at first very smart and then eventually not so smart was he created the Bull Simpson Commission to investigate how to streamline our tax code. And the Bull Simpson Commission eventually proposed a massive tax streamlining that would have both reduced general tax rates and increased revenue. Um, that, and in the end, he ended up not supporting their solution. And that's the part that was not so smart because it was actually a good plan. Uh -huh. uh, as far as I can tell, that is more or less the only option that the White House has right now. Create a bipartisan commission, six Democrats, six Republicans, people who are experienced in healthcare policy, but who are not current legislators. Mm -hmm. Give them six months to a year to produce a comprehensive healthcare reform plan. Well, and get rid of this obsession with we have to repeal Obamacare. I mean, right, well, it's it's become it's 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 a political thing rather than a than a practical thing. Well, it's, to a, be fair, it's the fact that Obama's nay on it. To be fair, it's a political problem on both sides mm -hmm. because on the one hand, Republicans are going to call anything they do a repeal and replace. Even if it's just a small tweak, they'll call it a repeal and replace. Because that's what they have sold for seven years. Democrats are never going to cooperate because Democrats have, you know, they've got a hard line that they're never repealing and replacing Obamacare. So as long as Republicans say that a bill is repealing and replacing, no Democrat will ever wow. support it. When what we really need is comprehensive reform of the whole system. Sure. And I, I will, and we should move on to the next topic, but... All I have to say is that all these Congress critters just, they need to get over themselves and realize that they are dealing with something that is life and death for a lot of people. And to remember why that why their constituents sent, constituents sent them there. And it wasn't to, to fight and score cheap political points. It was to actually do some good in the world. And something like kicking, you know, millions of people off Medicaid, that's just, I don't think they're ever going to have enough votes for that. That's just... You know, my, even my father, who is a fairly staunch Republican, you know, he, he was even saying, he's like, you know what? Entitlements, they never go away. They just don't. It's just a political reality. Once you've created an entitlement and something is as, as important as health care, you, you can't get rid of that. It's just it, it, people will 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 not abide having something that's that that's that important taken away. And so they need to find a solution that doesn't involve I mean, I mean, that was always going to be well, the headline is how many millions of people are they going to take care away from? And then what are they going to end up doing? It's just there was I think it was very easy. I think it's very easy for anyone on either side to justify a no vote in this in this scenario. Well, I think the, I think the catch there is you can get rid of entitlements if you replace them with something that's better and more effective and more efficient. Well, that isn't getting rid of it. That's 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 improving it. That's creating a 2.0 right, version. But saying, okay, you're going to have insurance and now you're not. <laughs> I mean, the Medicaid expansion expanded Medicaid uh, to people who to were low people. income. It used to just be for people who are disabled and they now they include people or, or old and now they include people who are who are who are who are low income. 
and now they have insurance. And to say, oh, we're going to roll that back and no longer pay for it is, you know, that's just, it doesn't, it doesn't go over well. All and right. now let's talk about video games. Oh, no, now we're going to talk about treason. Oh, I thought we were going to talk video games. Are you uh, going to talk about treason? Chris v- vetoed Oh, censorship. I think she was joking, wasn't she? Uh, I, was, I was joking. Which one do you want to Yeah, she was about? actually joking because it was, she was making a joke about censorship. Oh. <laughs> she was censoring uh, you. I've also... <laughs> you didn't quite catch that. I'm now... <laughs> I've now spent the last however long we've been talking drinking on an empty stomach, so... Oh, that's fine. Um, so tell us about censorship in Australia. So... Here but you have in, to do this with all an Australian accent. Oh, I'm not so we even can offend try. our Australian listeners. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll. I'd make a joke about all two of you, but I think that's about how many subscribers we have, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're big in Australia. So, in the United States, video game ratings are actually done in industry. Um, the ES T for teen. The ESRB <laughs> is an industry body that effectively self-regulates and it works pretty well in the U S uh, in Australia. On the other hand, they have basically a censorship commission where they receive a video game. They watch clips of the game and they determine from those clips of the game, what rating it should receive. And often if they decide that a game is too violent or too sex filled, um, they will ban it completely. So, uh, recently, one game that earned the ire was Outlast 2, which is the sequel uh-huh. to Outlast, uh, a successful indie survival horror video game. And they just they decided that Outlast 2 was too violent and therefore would not receive a rating, so it would be illegal to sell that in Australia. Mm. Uh, I'll say... I like video games. It's one of the ways that I relax. Uh, one of my favorite video game critics, who I enjoy listening to uh, in a variety of forms, is a guy named Ben Yahtzee Croshaw, who writes and does videos and stuff for Escapist Magazine. And he spent much of the last decade of his life living in Brisbane. And one of the things that he's pointed out in his reviews is that Australia will ban these games... But it's totally unenforceable because all you have to do is order that game on Amazon through the Amazon site for a country where it's not banned and have it shipped to you. So instead of going to Amazon.au, go to Amazon.com or presumably (laughs) Amazon.nz or just some other, you know, some other country in that region Uh and have it shipped over and they can't stop them. So these games get in anyway. And what they're really doing is depriving their own local game stores of being able to make a profit. Um, I have spent a lot of time recently looking at where are their libertarian or libertarian-leaning politicians around the world. You know, people who show a ray of hope that libertarianism can go mainstream somewhere. <laughs> um And there is a senator in Australia, because they have a Senate um, as one of their bodies of their legislature. There's a senator who I believe his name is Leondhelm. uh, It's kind of a Nordic name. Who's like an older white guy. I don't think he's particularly interested in video games. 
But he's been very vocal lately as I've started to follow him about video game censorship. And he actually has been posting about, you know, a big victory for him. He successfully lobbied to get Outlast 2 unbanned. It has been rated R18+, plus, uh-huh. but it will be available in stores. Censorship in general? I don't think we should censor anything. But what about the children? You know, where are their parents? Doesn't it make these kids violent? I where mean, are their parents? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh... It's, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that these games are not good or not good for for children or for anybody. The question is, is it up to the government to decide that it should or shouldn't be allowed for for anyone? I mean, the well, fact. Even... I mean, it's one thing to say you you know to restrict selling them to to minors. It's another thing to say this game is illegal and no one should be allowed to play it. Right. Well, and also like but you it's... can you can argue that violent video games make for violent people. You can also argue that. Like, full-contact sports make for more violent people. Data doesn't actually bear out. Mm -hmm. Um, We are living now in the least violent times. You know, like, there's a lot of terrible things happening in the world. But we are actually living in the least violent times that we know of in history well, yeah, that's true. Even and, though, even even though Mr. Trump might uh, <laughs> and given have his alternative facts on that, but given that video games, like, there's no hard data on whether or not video games make people more or less violent, there is, there is sort of fundamental truth that, like, video games exist, and are getting more and more popular every year with all segments of the population, and also incidentally we get less violent every year. <laughs> um, those two things may be unrelated. They're most likely the, the, related the question in is, a very should remote it even way. Matter? Should it even matter? Right. Should it even matter? I say no. Um, I mean, I, I have a fairly, I have a fairly hardcore attitude towards censorship and that I'm against it in pretty much any form. In fact, I would say that I think ratings, the rating system itself is a form of censorship and should be done away with. Agree. Um, however, I mean, the Motion Picture Association of America, their rating system, I think can be horribly repressive and can and 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 can damage. You know, it's 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 I mean, getting a hard R and or God forbid, an NC-17 that can ruin a, a film as far as its chances of making money. There's a lot of theaters that won't even show NC-17. Frankly, I don't think we really need ratings. <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> Something I mean, most films I think people have a fairly good idea what what the what the kind of content it is without without having you know someone give their arbitrary opinion about what it. I mean, it's one thing to say what it contains, but to say it's to use the word restricted and actually say, well, we won't even let you see this movie if you're under a certain age. I think is kind of a unnecessary thing. In the year two thousand. When then First Lady Hillary Clinton and then Senator Joe Lieberman were crusading against violent video games. Oh, don't forget Tipper. And Tipper. Oh, definitely Tipper. Vulgar music, right? Yep. Uh, There was a presidential debate between Gore and Bush where they were asked how they felt about violence in video games. And Gore said something about, it's bad. And Bush's response was... (laughs) This was when violent video games were like Mortal Kombat. Right. Bush's response was actually uh, really wonderful and fascinating. His response was, 
if I could have legislated people loving each other as governor of Texas, I would have, but you can't. I think that parents need to be more involved in the lives of their children. And I think he's just right. Like, I'm sorry, but if you're worried about your kid playing a violent video game, then you should do a little research before you buy them games. That's true. I mean, where are these kids? I mean, I mean, do these kids have jobs? Are they buying these game consoles themselves? I mean, <laughs> right. Do they have access to their parents' credit cards? Mm. Um, yeah. Like how, how does a 14 year old get hold of a mature game? Yeah. They come up with the 60 bucks, you know? It's yeah. Like... <laughs> right. Or I mean, 60 bucks these days, the going price for like a premium game from a triple A developer is 80 or mm-hmm. more special editions, whatever can be up to $200 sometimes. So so p- these parents, they basically want the industry to remove the temptation and only provide, you know, like, you know, the Care Bears rainbow, you know, game or whatever. Right, 20 flavors of Candy Crush. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's like, what? You know, when I was a kid, I remember the first PC game. This is going to be really sad to people who are, like, hardcore PC gamers. The first PC game that I ever, like, played all the way through at single player was Quake 3 Arena, which people note is actually a multiplayer game. So I played through the th- the story mode, the barebone story mode with bots. That is a game where when you shoot someone with a rocket launcher, they explode into like chunky bits. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't do anything to me. And I will say this. My parents didn't know that. My parents didn't know that it was like a super gory, ultra-violent game. They let me buy it because my friends had it. And they trusted me. And in the end, I have yet to murder anyone. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, you know, believe it or not, you know, teenagers can tell the difference between real violence and fantasy violence. People go out and see violent movies, play violent video games. They usually don't go out and kill people. Now, if you are somebody who likes to murder people, maybe playing the violent video game is just, you know, also is your jam. But. You know, one isn't necessarily the cause of the other, or there really isn't much. I believe there was actually. I mean, it's you know the the state of California actually lost uh, a case where the video game uh, developers association actually sued them over uh, hmm. video over a, what was essentially a ban, a restriction on on selling video game certain uh, like mature video games to. I don't know. We're vigorously agreeing on this one. I'm afraid, Ben. Yeah, we are in vigorous agreement, as they would say. Um, yeah, censorship, bad. I think that if you out there, if you're a parent and you're worried about what sort of media, video game, movie, TV, books, whatever, if you're worried about the media your child is consuming, you know what? You should do some research. You should look into it. As someone who, is ed- as someone who has been an educator for children, like... It's good to expose kids to all sorts of different things. And, but if you don't want them to be exposed to that, you're going to have to take a proactive role in monitoring what your kids are exposed to. Oh, yeah. If you, I mean, if you want to bubble wrap your kids and protect them from the world, that's your prerogative. But you shouldn't be demanding that the government do it for you. Actually, when I, so I taught a class for a while in Jews and Cinema, uh, because that's a job I had. Um, And one of the things that I did is I showed a classroom of eighth graders the first uh, the first 20 minutes of Alien. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
right up until the face hugger scene. And the reason I did that was because it was at the end of this unit on Jews in cinema. And the idea was to then say like, who in that cast is Jewish? And it's basically a rhetorical question because the answer is Yafit Kodo, the giant black guy is the one Jewish member of the cast of alien. Um, so then you talk about stereotypes, talk about Yafit Kodo, whatever. Okay. So we would get to the face hugger and then I would say, all right, that's the end of this. If you want to see the rest of it, go tell your parents that you want to watch Alien and see what they say. I said, like, you this got is... a few. Uh... Well, I did. Like, and I said, I said, this is an R-rated movie. I'm not going to show you the rest of it. Like, there's nothing violent up until this mo- like up until this point. Uh-huh. So, you know, they haven't seen anything that would kids? warrant that. Eighth graders. Oh, okay. Um, like, you know... Right. They hadn't seen anything that was actually violent mm-hmm. at that. And you got a lot of complaints. No, I didn't no? get any complaints. Really? What I got was some people were like, yeah, I asked my parents if I could watch Alien and they said I would have to watch it when I got older. Mm-hmm. And, other par- and other kids were like, I asked my parents if I could watch Alien and they were like, yeah, you're old enough. And, and they then, watched and it. Then, and now I'm scarred for life. Thank you, Ben. You. <laughs> <laughs> now I can't sleep. <laughs> I'm just... It's you know, only if they go into space. It's only a problem if they go into space. Um, and with that, and with that, uh, I guess we are going to talk about treason. Are How much? What time are we at, Chris? What time are we at? Right. Forty-nine minutes. Yeah, we probably should wrap it. I mean, we can still talk about treason if you want. But if you have something you really want to say about treason, people are starting to use that word now. Uh, you know, when talking about, I mean, the whole thing with with Trump and Russia, it just keeps getting. You know, it, it's like. We're not, I mean, th- th- there's been a lot of smoke and no, and not a lot of fire just yet, but that smoke just keeps getting just thicker keeps and coming. thicker. Actually, so let's, let's, well, maybe next week something will happen. Yeah. We'll save it for next week. We'll okay. See. I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about treason next week. We'll that was the one thing about the, the healthcare vote is it did kind of tamp down some of the Russia story, but. Only for the moment. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um. There's a lot of people who will very correctly point out that hey, there's there's no uh, definite you know connect you know they haven't we don't have any definitive proof that there was collusion between Trump and the Russian government, but that drip 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 is is still coming. I mean, oh, yeah. right after uh, 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 Mr. Nunes, the uh, the chair of the uh, intelligence committee, went and did his little solid for Trump at the White House that very same night, as if like. You can just see Comey like pounding his fist on the table and go, God damn it. And then gets on the phone and, and calls up CNN. <laughs> I'll just say, I hope that Trump has a go bag ready mm. and that his go bag includes a Russian <laughs> phrase book because he might need it. Hey, well, it worked for Yanukovych. <laughs> well, and on that he had note. To, he had to abandon all his zoo animals. and. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. That, I think we will we will uh, conclude tonight's episode. My name is Lelius Rose. My name is Ben Phelps. And we are your precious snowflakes. <laughs>